Fred Murray wants his daughter back. And if he can't have that, he wants answers. Last seen one year ago. She vanished eight years ago. It's been 10 long years. And not a thing has changed. I started out on the first day I got there asking for the FBI to come in and take a look at the case. I'm still asking for the FBI. had the opportunity, or really the honor, of speaking with Maura's father, Fred Murray, who was nice enough to spend an entire afternoon answering every single one of my three pages of questions. So over the next few episodes, I'll be playing back the recording of our conversation. I want to give a huge thank you to Mr. Murray for his time and for sharing his knowledge about the case, and I also want to thank Julie for facilitating everything. A lot of the discussion in this episode surrounds the six-part Oxygen series that concluded in October and Mr. Murray shares his thoughts and opinions on the show, including some of the things he liked and disliked, as well as some of the things he would like to clarify. As a disclaimer, I just want to stress the point that criticism of specific elements of the show should not be misconstrued as an overall denunciation of the show. I'm only speaking for myself here, but I think Mr. Murray should have the right to voice his opinion, free from any fear that his words could be used as ammunition to incite or provoke personal feuds or agendas that ultimately divert attention away from the case. Beyond that, some of the other topics include the background of the A-frame house, what he knows about the party at Sarah Alfieri's on the Saturday night prior, and some of the suspicious individuals that have been brought to his attention over the years. I'll be back at the end of the episode with a few brief notes about some of the topics mentioned, and Ethan will be back with me in a few episodes to help follow up with a more thorough review of some of the new information. So with that, here's part one of my conversation with Fred Murray. Oxygen show cleared up a lot of the rumors that were out there for a long time. But I guess my first question is, are there any misconceptions out there that still exist and that you'd like to see clarified? Right off the bat, all I've heard about from the cops, they, they started on this early and, and stuck with it, and it was their mantra. She went into the woods, walked into the woods. I thought, no, she didn't walk into the woods. Because if she walked into the woods, there would be footprints because there were two feet of snow. Plus the dog trail they did made it seem pretty unlikely that she walked into the woods. That's true. And we didn't know that at the time, you know. But I was right there and talked to the guy, Bogatis, that was directing it, right in the middle of it, right at their, their headquarters, uh, where they were parked on the side of the road. It's a big clearing. All the, all the searches start there. That was headquarters for the search. And it was right down where 112 just right between where the two uh, 116s, one south and one north, uh, branch off 112. There's a big clearing 
was a park at the end of it into the woods. They were all parked there. That's where I was parked because I was searching in the area myself. I didn't know they were there. And there's Bogatis, and I talked to him, and he described what they were doing from way back, way up to the height of land, he called it. And that's the search they did, 12 or 13 miles, whatever it was. But um, they came up with nothing there, and uh, I was really glad to see that last episode, or whatever episode it was, when Bogata said there was no chance she went in the woods, because that was what they were hanging their hat on. And the reason for it, it kept coming back and back and back, is the old squaw walk. The old squaw walk is the second half of the statement that I made. You never, ever hear the first half. They were talking to me about, well, she must have walked into the woods. It, 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 it happens, Fred, and nobody understands why, and it's a combination of circumstances, blah, blah, blah. She didn't walk into the woods. She would never do it. That's not the type of personality she has. I'm not even going to look. There is no sense because she absolutely did not do that. And then they said, well, what she could have. She could have. Uh, did she ever discuss it or something? No, she never discussed anything like that. It's just... It's a non-factor. And uh, she said, well, if she did, what would she do? I said, she didn't. Where would she go? She didn't. She did not do that. And I was getting irritated with them. I said, she never talked about suicide. Uh, it's never been a, a topic of conversation. But then, I don't know exactly why I mentioned this. I said, well, we saw a movie once. I think it was called Cheyenne Autumn. And it was tough on... Uh, on the Indians, the winter came, and they filed into the woods. You know, they all, the whole tribe. And uh, the real old squaws are real old, old people. When they're at the end of the line, they knew there were going to be a drag on the column. They would just get last, and they'd just drop off the end and die in the snow in the woods when it was their time, you know. And uh, that was the old squaw walk. I said, but she didn't do that. that. That did not happen. That's the only time that the term suicide came up. And uh, that that was the context of it. So all I've heard ever since is the old squaw walk. So you did know. they, sorry to interrupt, but did yeah. they push you? Yeah. To sort of? Yes. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Yes. They kept after me. Uh, suicide was the thing. Because if, if a bad guy grabbed her, <laughs> they got some explaining to do. They got a, they got a case in their hands. You know, but uh, which is what happened. But if she walked into the woods and committed suicide, oh, what, what are we going to do about that, Mr. Murray? We can't help that, you know. We'll try to find her for you, but uh, we can't stop people from doing that. And no responsibility. Plus, the background, the setting is there's no crime in New Hampshire because it is, it's horrible for business. And the whole economy up there is uh, dependent on tourism, on three seasons. You know, and you cannot mess that up. And you never hear of major crime in New Hampshire. Maybe since this, uh, but not before that. It was everything was brushed under the rug. You know, they come up here and they, they got lost in the woods or they committed suicide in the woods. All these uh, missing people, and there were a ton of missing people. Uh, a lot of women, mm -hmm. you know. Of course. And, and that's, that's what it is, you know. And... Uh, you really get nowhere talking to them. They, they've got their mind made up on that, and that's their way out. That was the context. That was the setting. That's what I've had to deal with the whole time. That's the background. 
And that's the beauty of Bogatus finally coming out in that program. That is probably the major event of, of the oxygen program, is the debunking of the um, suicide theory, the walk into the woods theory. It did not happen. It's not her personality. Way too tough. She'd fight right to the bloody end. She would run and fight. That's what Mara would do. You couldn't catch her anyway. I couldn't catch her. I was in great shape. I had no shot. You know, she's getting away. In a short distance, I'd have to catch her within the first three feet. Fifty yards, I'm not going to get her. You know, anything longer than that, and she's long gone. And these slobs are not going to catch Mara. I agree. <laughs> and uh, so it, it would have been a, this huge, uh, this huge fight. All right, but that's what I've got to say about the old squaw walk. That's how it came about. They're trying to drag something out of me. You know, the old squaw walk was just a description of the only time the concept of suicide ever came up was when they were hounding me, and I and I told them the old squaw walk was that movie was the only time uh, had the term suicide or the the concept of suicide as as a topic, and it wasn't a topic; it was just fleeting part of the movie, and I never should have said it. I didn't know it was going to be misused like this, you know. But uh, when you mention the old squaw, it, it takes. It, it makes it sound, they're trying to make it sound like I saying that she could have, maybe did, and this is how she did it, commit suicide. It's not the case at all. It never happened in that context, and it's never anything I believed. And right from the get-go, I said that is out. But every time you hear Old Squaw Walk, you do not hear the first part of my statement. The program lets them get away with it. I explained this to the program, you know, but especially uh, Cecil. And you see him cackling, smirking to himself about the old squaw walk. It was horrible, you know. I can't do anything about it, but I, I wish I could have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. The two points that Smith made on his appearance were that she was drunk and that she was suicidal. That's yeah, it. neither one. Neither one. In other words, it's not my fault. That's right. That's it. That's a... The exculpation of the police officers was the mission on this program, you know. Those guys have never spoken in public. The program put enough pressure on them to make them come out there. That's another good thing about the program. Those are the two best things that happened about that program. They were, they were long overdue and needed, and the program induced them to have to do that. So that's I'm, I'm, I'll be forever grateful to the program for, for that. Okay, another thing. In the program, Maggie said it was five and a half years before Fred talked to police. That really exasperates me, because I talked to the police from the get-go, over and over. I was up to the, their, their barracks, or whatever you want to call it, the state police headquarters um, in Bethlehem, I guess, uh, several times, talking to them, and they'd have the room full of the top brass you know, in their uniforms, you know, with all kinds of stuff hanging. And I'm, they put me in a chair, and I'm completely surrounded everywhere I look. You know, this is pressure. And then they're assuring me that they're going to get it. They take care of everything. Don't you worry, Mr. Murray. And to make me think that something's being done about it all the time. The only thing that was being done about it was to keep their behinds out of it, you know. So I talked to the police very early. I talked to them a lot. But... <clears throat> He sued them for not talking to you. Yeah. And so, and so Maggie, for Maggie to come out and say five and a half years, you know, Renner comes out and says two or two and a half years, yeah. Fred didn't talk to the police. It's such garbage. 
I was all over the police. I was after them in an accusatory way. You know, because I'm not afraid of them. You don't have to be afraid if you're not hiding anything. And so, and they might be. Usually it's the cops after the, the guy. This time it was the guy after the cops, you know. But it's, it's so frustrating and annoying. But then to have to listen to this, which is just, a, that's twice as long, more than twice as long as Renna's claiming I didn't talk to. So that's worse than Renna. Twice as bad. I, you can see why I'm upset about it. So that basically rots me, you know, to be a little crude. That's a term from way back in the old days. That rots me. <laughs> Those guys we were little kids. You know? <laughs> that was back in the 50s. That rots me. Anyway, but five and a half years. I want to stress that point, that that is such pure junk. Now, the next thing is the car, it's made out to be that the car accident put a heavy financial burden on me. It did not put an uh, in, insurmountable financial burden on me. But the job I had that time, I've never had a job before or since uh, where you can make, in my field, that much money, twice as much as anybody who was the average staff tech back home was making because of all the extra stuff they give you. They, they, the agency enters into a, a contract with the hospital who pays them a lot of money, and they keep a lion's share, but they, they're still a big chunk. And they give me a travel allowance that was beyond any belief, all kinds of allowances. How they put me up in a hotel, you know, and I had money saved, you know. It w was not a crushing load. And then insurance paid for it. So it's, I, I paid 500 bucks to get that car repaired. And the pressure was off that day because the, the car place was giving me a loaner. <laughs> there was no financial strain. I thought it was going to be covered, and I found out for sure a day later. So there was no pressure on me for that, you know? I wasn't howling. I was uh, irritated when it first happened because I'm in Amherst. I've got to be back in Connecticut for my job the next day. How am I going to do that? I've got a contract job and they're paying me very well. I had taken the job in December or something and here it is February. And my point is I had to get back the next day. So I was not uh, out of control mad or anything like that. And as soon as I, I realized that I could get it fixed my big problem was, how am I getting back to Connecticut? Because I've got this responsibility. I must discharge my responsibility. How am I going to do that? And now here's the answer. Here's how you're going to do it, Fred, with our free loaner. We'll fix your car, take this loaner, and then I'm, I'm covered with insurance. The pressure was off. It was off. There was no enragement, you know. It was just, at that point, it was just mild irritation. The last thing I said to Mara, don't worry, Mara, it's going to be taken care of. Uh, there's no lasting damage here. It's, I, I tried to comfort her, you know. That's the worst thing. I thought to myself, that kid has never done anything that caused me any problem in her entire life. I said, that's all a kid ever does. <laughs> I'm way ahead of the game. That was my thinking, and that's what I, that's what I said to anyone that wanted to know, and that's the story on that. So it, that, I, it's important for me to get that out, you know, because that's a misconception. Fred really reamed her out. He didn't, you know. I wasn't mad at her. She was a kid. If she was doing stuff like that all the time, but she never did anything. Never. But anyway, um, it's important that you know that.
Is there anything that you know or can share about the dorm party that was supposedly at Sarah Alfieri's house Saturday night? Uh, or anything else, any other information from Kate and Sarah? Kate and Sarah both told me that they do not know why Mara left. I don't know what to make of uh, uh, Sarah. Sarah had three friends. Her cousin was there, some guy who brought two friends at the dorm party. And I can get nothing from Sarah. Sarah told me that she was asleep the whole time. But there were three guys there. And I want to know who they were and what about them and what their possible participation was. Of course, that was that was Saturday night, and Mara's gone um, on Monday. But did any of these birds have anything to do with anything? And I don't know who they are, and I want to talk to them because I want to find out more about that party night, Saturday night. And incidentally, I only talked to Sarah once. I called her. She told me I was asleep the whole time, Mr. Murray, and I don't have any idea what happened. You know, so obviously if she knows, she's not telling me. That story sounds unlikely that she's asleep the whole time. Anyway, that's my only uh, interaction with Sarah. But her three, her relative and her his two buddies, uh, guys I want to talk to. She didn't tell you who they were? No. No, and I think it was Kate who told me, Kate Markopoulos, who told me that the three guys were Sarah's cousins. Uh, one was Sarah's cousin. So that's the story on that, as I understand it. Kate didn't remember the names of the, no, the three guys? No. So anyway, that's part of the case, and you should know that. Those are three guys that should be talked to. Do we know anything else about these guys? No. Because I sort of discounted the UMass party. I thought it was like a salacious kind of runner mm. being just interested in what young women do at parties, but... Yeah, that's well, kind of and even so, it was surprising. Saturday. It was Saturday night too, and Mara left Monday. You know, right? But I don't know why she wouldn't just tell you. I mean, maybe she has her reasons. She doesn't want them to be crucified in the media. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that that's a very that's not a good enough reason not to tell you, in my opinion. I believe Kate. She was actually Mara's friend. Sarah was, and Sarah was just somebody that worked in a place where Mara worked too. But uh, Kate was the one that Mara hung around with. And um, I think Kate would have told me. She's talking to her her buddy's father. You know, I'm not haranguing her, pressuring her. I'm just talking. If you if you if you can help me, Kate, please do it. Let me you know, help me out. Help Mara. Help me help Mara. You know, and she just she had nothing to nothing to offer. She would have, I think. I think you, so. You can read people. Um, I just I think I would have been able to tell if. Uh, she was holding it back. But I I picked up absolutely no no sense of that whatsoever. I thought this girl will help. And uh, that, that she she didn't know. I believe her. But uh, Mari didn't go to Butson's or McDonald's like uh, Renna says, or Canada, or any of that stuff. <laughs> she wasn't with two other people. Blondes, two blondes. Those girls from school aren't blondes. That's, Kate's got really dark hair. That never happened. I went down and talked to the people at Butson's, and they had no story at all. They were confused, and who said what, and uh, they have a camera that goes down the middle. They don't have, they couldn't produce that. There was just nothing, nothing to chase. They had nothing to, nobody could tell a straight story. Nobody had anything worth listening to to say. And with these two other women with her, you know, there's no such thing. 
Okay, another thing. I'm, I'm supposed to be talking about the program here. At one point, Maggie asked me about sexually assaulting my daughter. What a cheap shot that is. Even the cops can't ask me about that. What a cheap ploy, a cheap shot for ratings. I re really rots me to death that you're going to take a, what else can you call it, but a cheap shot like that. You know, so there was good and there's bad about that program. I have to take it because I wanted to go from, as I said, from a small little cult type of status to something broad that will run on its own, you know, and so we'll just keep mushrooming and, and steamrolling. That's what I'm trying to set up to make it so big that the cops are forced to come out and, and talk. And it worked. That got the cops out in public, and they never would have done it. They hadn't for 13 years, right. and boom, here they're out there and they had to talk. That's another good thing. You know, I, I'm pretty quick to say about the bad stuff about the program, but there was a lot of good stuff, and that was almost chief among them, you know. So, But anyway, that leaves a, that leaves a bitterness in me, you know, it, when I happen to think about them. In Maggie's defense, or in the show's defense maybe, the only reason they had to do that is because Renner put that claim out there. And I feel like to a lot of people, fair or not, silence is going to be an admission of guilt. So I'm glad that at least it's sort of put to rest and frankly, Renner's the one that came off looking reprehensible for suggesting that in his book. So... But anyway, you know, everybody wants to get in the act and have something to say. And the, the Renner influence on the case is, is, has hurt, you know. It's, it's been a, dis, it's hurt by means of being a distraction. And it, it, it keeps me and everybody else from concentrating on what needs to be done. I, I don't want to have to defend myself. I, I was torn whether I just totally ignore him, but then I'm, I'm, I'll be subjected to the idea, well, if Fred didn't do this, Fred would have said that he didn't right. do it. So you're, you're guilty if you don't defend yourself. You know. So I chose to take it on point for point. I wrote one letter, and that was the five most important things. So I said, well, let's get them all. Let's touch on everything he says I want to rebut. And, and just just debunk, just counter it with the truth. And so out came the uh, the second letter. So that's the story behind the, the letters and the way I handled Renna. I, I want I was really torn, and but I don't like to get hit and not swing back. You know, turn the other cheek. I always, even as a little kid, turn the other cheek. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but then I'll get walloped on the other cheek. Yeah. You know. <laughs> So that's that's what I was doing, and uh, well, here's here's something else that uh, I don't know anything about, and I want to know something about. What about the three Loon Mountain workers? I found out about that later, maybe a year or two years into the case, that there were three workers from Loon Mountain, young males, I guess, that would have driven by that area that weren't at work that day. Who are they? What are their names? Where can I find them? I've never spoken to them. Have the cops spoken to them? Who knows? But I haven't. I don't know who they are. And I want to know that. If the cops haven't spoken to those guys, then the case is incomplete. They haven't investigated. That's, that should be part of the investigation. 
because these people were mentioned to me as possible suspects or people who, that should be spoken to to see what they saw, if even that. You know, did you see this girl walking? Did you see the accident? Did you come by shortly after the accident? What did you see? You know, the people that tell me about this said that they grabbed her. So um, that's something that can still be pursued. They didn't give you any names or anything? No, but that can't be lost in time. It's, no, uh, I. so there's two sets of brothers. Um, there's the Osh brothers. That's not them. And then there's the Gl brothers. That's not them. Well, I mean, not they're not the mountain workers. We'll get to those boys. Oh, okay. But anyway, those are the three guys I want to talk to. And they are not Osh and... Uh, and yeah. So that's an open question. That's a burning question in my mind. These guys may have grabbed it. So that's if the next thing I want to do is try to find out who these birds are and go talk to them. Uh, so if there's any way to get that done... I'm sure that there is. That would be a featherman, whoever's bonnet does it. left off with some suspicions surrounding the A-frame house. Can you tell us about the background of that and the story behind the rusty knife that was reportedly given to you by Claude Moulton's brother? Claude Moulton's brother came to me and um, said he thought that his brother Claude was involved um, in my daughter's disappearance. And one of the things he said is that this bloody, it looked like a big, long, super jackknife but it had red stains on it, no question about it, you know. So I went, I had that, and he gave me a couple other things that belonged to Claude. Uh, I went to the state police and couldn't find, it was on a Sunday or something, the state police uh, building up there, I couldn't find anyone to give it to. I couldn't find a state cop in the state cop headquarters. So I, oh, I, I left and I mailed it to the director, the head guy, the commander of the entire state police. I mailed him that, and I never heard a word whether... Oh, I, I, he did get it, because I had the return thing, the certified return mail. And so I know they got it, but I never heard a thing about it. That's another thing that they have never gotten back to me on. I think that one of the things that Strelzen said is that everything that they've gotten into their possession, they've tested. So I don't know. No, but... no, we have no way. That's what prompted me the whole time to conduct my own investigation. I do not trust the cops. They're trying to exculpate themselves from any responsibility, you know. But anyway, that's something that happened, and that's the bloody knife. Did Claude have a, or Larry have a story to go with that, or anything else other than I think my brother's a bad guy? <laughs> no, it's just just an extremely bad character reference for his brother, you know. He told me what a, what a jerk and a monster the brother was, and bad treatment for women, and things like that. And plus, he was after young women and, and that business, you know. So that's another thing you hear about. But that's that's what happened. Um, did he ever go to the police that you, you know of, or did he only come to you? He called me. I went to him. Um, did he go to the police? I don't know. Okay. I'd rather tell you I don't know than say I think he did. I think I don't know. Oh, what about the... The bloody carpet. I'm not talking about this recent discovery up there in the closet uh, with the piece of wallpaper that they had analyzed and may have blood on it. 
this was a bloody carpet sample, but it appeared to be blood. This is carpet. This is a wallpaper. The carpet is gone now. It was in the A-frame. The, uh, the police, the, the League of Investigators were up there. And uh, these are, you know about them, don't you? Mm -hmm. they're, yeah, yes. they're volunteers and stuff like that. They were helping. They went in, cut out samples of carpet, and uh, they were going to have it analyzed. And so I event when I when I heard nothing, I eventually tracked down the guy that had the carpet that was holding it in uh, the the scientifically proper conditions. Whatever you have to do, he had them held in that condition waiting to be analyzed. And John Healy, the, uh, the director of the volunteer uh, retired cop search group, was going to get it done. But Healy is the guy with these carpet samples. He never had them analyzed. I found out about it two and a half years later. But um, when I told Strelzen this, this years after that, he said, no, no, we, we never heard about that. We didn't hear about those carpet samples. So Healy took them. He gave them to this guy and never never pressed it after that. So to this day, I don't know whether Strelson went to the guy and got them and had them analyzed. I still don't know that. So we still don't know where any of the carpet samples ended up? <laughs> I know the guy that I gave them to was the guy I was supposed to give them to. The cops probably told me. And he put them in, in the proper storage area. And Healy was going to get them and, and test them. It never happened. And so that's actual what appears to be blood on carpet in the A-frame removed by the League of Investigators and no follow-up. What if that's blood? What if that's human blood? That's uh, kind of remarkable. I yeah. thought that those were tested. No. No, they were not tested. And if they eventually were, I never heard about it. I told them. And Strelzen said, and he talked to his boys, his, the other cop, no, 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 we never got those. Who's got them? Who's got them? So I told him. And, uh, Where are they now? I don't know. I assume the cops have them. I assume the cops, when I told Strelzen about that, I assume Strelzen went and got them. The state police should be asked that. Strelzen himself should be asked that. Then, what about That's the... Group. What about Rafo from Rafo uh, uh, Form Company, uh, Cement Foundations? The very first week, a psychic came up there from Connecticut, I believe, says concrete, concrete. She's near concrete. And she brought me down Brick Kiln Road. Is that the name of it? Lime Kiln. What is it? Lime Kiln Road. No, no, not, not up, no. not like Briar Hill. No, no, no. Boy, you know some, there's <laughs> not some spots. Man, it'll come to me. The road right, right, right before you get to the corner where the uh, little country store there is. French Pond Road. Oh, right. The end of French Pond Road, there's a cemetery. She went absolutely nuts, running around holding her head. She's close. She's under this snowbank by the stone wall. But foundation, foundation, cement, cement, foundation. The other end, about one mile down the street, is Sam's foundation business. And bragging around town that he was involved in uh, Mara's uh, disappearance. I tried to get the cops. Have the cops ever looked at it? Who knows? I wanted Maggie and Art to do something there. Did they? They didn't. Maggie and Art never went anywhere near him. And the other bird is Tim Carpenter, who was married to uh, my daughter. 
There's a guy up there who swears that he saw a red truck with a big bundle of blankets tied up with what had to be a cadaver. He says he's, it's a decaying cadaver. This is in April, in the spring, as if you took somebody out of a frozen in snow, wrapped them up, and had to find a burial. The body is starting to smell. This is in um, a couple of towns over on Route 25. His name was Jeremy Rathbun. He made a sketch and gave it to me before he ever saw Tim Carpenter. Then one day we were up in, um, what the hell's the name of that town? Uh, I'll, remember. I'll, I'll get it. But anyway, we met in the center of town. There's a big rocket ship in the middle of this town. <laughs> it's on Route 25. And uh, anyway, we all met there, and we went up into the woods where he said he found a uh, sort of sweater. Yeah, I think it was like a sweatshirt or something. A like sweatshirt that. or something like that. And we went in the woods, but this was, oh, probably a mile on the other side of where he brought me and showed me where this guy that I referred to as Stink Face, because the guy had a mask on to cut down the odor or something. You know how people might wear a mask in a disaster area where there are bodies? And Jeremy says, in the back of the truck, was this bundle, and it stunk. He said, I've smelled decaying bodies before. That's what it was. This is Jeremy Rathbun telling me this. And the guy had a mask on, so we didn't know what to do with that. Then after Jeremy found uh, this blue sweatshirt, then he, he called me, and he said, the reason I was up there, the reason I found it, is uh, that same day that we saw Stinkface with his load, uh, Patty, that's his his wife there, who also builds herself as a psychic. It's amazing how many people are psychics. <laughs> Say they, uh... But anyway, they looked up on a hillside and saw the same truck with the cap off. So the, a, a guy were trying to air it out or something like that. And um, the truck disappeared. They went up and looked around. All they could find was that blue sweatshirt. And so that day, though, I was with Kathleen and Tim. They were there. And that's... Uh, uh, Jeremy got a look at Tim, and then what? Not right away, but a couple months later, said Fred. I don't know how to tell you this. That guy there, Tim, is Stinkface. He is the guy that I saw at the pond with the truck with the wrapped up uh, stinking load. And I said, Well, that guy had a mask on. He says, No, it's unmistakable, Fred. I know that is Tim Carpenter. And he's, he's this is you know we saw Tim with Kathleen and with me and. And then he says, Fred, the guy can't look at me. He won't look at me. Jeremy and I went down into the woods and went, searched around in the woods where the red truck was seen in the woods with the cap off and stuff like that. Tim wouldn't go. He stayed out, uh, out by the street with his wife and Kathleen and stuff like that. But it was unnatural. The guy didn't go. You know, you, you can use guys in the search. But um, he didn't go and he... he but Jeremy says he will not look at me. He says, that is stink face. That's the guy with the disposing the stinking load. So I wanted the, these people to try to do something with the, the program, to try to do something with Tim Carpenter. And I don't, they didn't, you know. So there's, those are dirt bags all around that need a close look at, you know, and close inspection. And it has not been done. And I doubt that it will be done. So would Kathleen have known where Tim was on that Monday? Uh, Maybe it would, not. It would seem so, unless she was drunk. Oh, right. Which yeah. is possible. But and that's a long time to be drunk. 
yeah. and he's got to go up there and, and dispose of a body. And first of all, he had to be up there to create a body to dispose of, you know. Must have been buried in the snow up there all that time. Well, who knows, you know. But based on Jeremy's uh, positive, near positive uh, identification, Tim needs to be asked about it by the police. And his truck was, yeah, his truck was red, if I'm recalling. Yeah, it was kind of maroonish. But they said this was a dark red, you know. I looked for Inkins. I didn't believe it. And I thought the truck was a cap. But then I saw a cap in Tim's garage. You know, so that may have been a cap, the cap that was on it, you know. So I don't know, but that's another thing that has not gotten a, a good look. You mentioned the brothers. What do we know about them? Because I had never even heard. Local dirtbags and uh, heavily into drugs and, and stuff like that. But they were on that road. Apparently, was on his way back from Lincoln, and uh, that would put them in the area. And one local said... I was told that there was a girl they think was Mara was seen in the car, in a car with the uh, and I've uh, called it a couple of times out of nowhere. All of a sudden I walk in on him. He comes home and there I am right, right in his front door and he, the guy can't look at me. No, no. And he, he with his girlfriend or something, a girlfriend I guess, and he, he he can't meet my gaze, you know. He's he looks suspicious as hell. He acts suspicious as hell. I got that name over and over and over again. I wanted the program to uh, develop it a little bit, you know. We got art, you know. Come on, art. Let's do this. I don't know what the cops did with them. Uh, they may have talked. I don't know because again, the cops don't tell me. If the cops, I told the cops, if you'll tell me what's going on, this whole thing is going to work a lot easier because. I don't know that you've done these things. I get right. tips, and I don't know if you follow up. Oh, we looked at that. We looked at that. That's what they say every time. Oh, we looked at that, Fred. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. We looked at that. You know, so I don't know how closely they looked at it, if they looked at it at all. So that leaves me still with demanding wanting to know. If you don't talk to me, I'm going to keep it up until I know. Like everybody else does when somebody goes missing. They thank the police very much, and then they go away. Some might complain, but then they, nothing happens. The police put them off, and they drift off, and you never hear from them again, and that's the end of the case. But this time that didn't happen because I, I stuck with it, and I had help. You know, I had a lot of help. Not influential help that I could use. On a mission to find his missing daughter, Mora, Fred Murray went to Concord to see Governor Lynch. I did meet with Mr. Murray. Frustrated with the state police investigation into her disappearance, Mr. Murray is asking the governor to release all her case files. This is just part of uh, overturning the, uh, the next stone to see what's under it. And, but it's incredibly hard and uh, it's, it's terribly frustrating. Let me tell you about the best help that I got and the most timely thing. And I asked the program to please mention this guy. Oh, I wanted Helena mentioned, of course. You know, the absolute salt of the earth. Helena. They didn't give Helena anywhere near enough credit. Helena is the Mara Murray case because 
I made a lot of noise, but I'm just a, this guy running around yelling about uh, cops, you know, <laughs> and, and, and searching and being a pain in the backside, which I was. I was searching all over the place. I get blamed for, for trespassing on people's property, but I barely ever did that. I really wasn't doing to anywhere near the extent that I get I get I get I get roasted for that, but I, I didn't it didn't matter, you know. Just about a, a year into the case, when things were quieting down and I thought it was the cosmos thought this is gonna dry up and blow away like they all do. This was a little more stubborn, but it's gonna go. Here comes uh, Tim Irvin. He says he does every now and then he feels he owes it. To society to do a, a pro bono so he did he contacted me and he said he'd like to represent me and what, what did I think you know a release of records but John Healy is the guy that kept trying to talk me out of uh, bringing the cops to court you know, the court case Healy repeatedly tried to talk me out of that and he really put on a, a major rush on me to get me not to do that not to take the cops to court did he give a reason for it? We're going to take care of it. We're, we're doing everything we can, Mr. Murray, and we'll get to the bottom of this. But we don't need to, the judge can do nothing. There's no sense in going. And um, so I said, no, that's, you've had time. You haven't done it. And I want all the help I can get, you know. And you won't show me the records. And something in those records that means nothing to you might very well mean something to me, and I'll help you with it. I'll explain it uh, and how it how it pertains to the case and what's important. But uh, so I went ahead with, it. and that led to the the, the court case, mm-hmm. which he did an admirable job with. I thought so. Yeah, and I read through everything. Sure, and um, but Tim Irvin put the case back on the map. He made all the difference, he and Helena. And the program didn't even mention Tim Irvin. I pleaded with him, you know. I said, before I even talk about anything, I want to make sure that Helena and Tim Irvin get the credit. Because without them, there would be no Murray case. You wouldn't be here. And so, but anyway, they uh, they had psychics on instead. I know. You know, looking for... Bridges now or something. Yeah. They look for everything, you know. I'm not kidding about the three trees in a row. A couple of things behind. That's crazy. No. But Tim Irvin needs to get the credit he deserves. That's a good guy, and he's he's very capable. Very capable. So that was part one of my conversation with Fred Murray. I have a few quick notes I want to mention about some of the topics that we touched on. The first thing is, I just want to reiterate what you could call the unsung hero in this case, and that's an attorney in Massachusetts named Tim Irvin. I don't think a lot of people know that name, but he spent years working to force the state of New Hampshire to release information about this case and made it as far as the New Hampshire Supreme Court. And he did it all pro bono. Just about all the information we have, the court documents, dispatch logs, accident reports, statements from the Attorney General's office, are all thanks to Tim Irvin. Bloggers, myself included, have posted and reposted the information he was able to force the state to hand over, but I think it's important to make very clear who deserves the credit for that, and it's no one other than Tim Irvin. 
My second note is that Mr. Murray mentioned two open letters he posted on John Smith's website in response to several claims James Renner has made over the years. So I reposted those letters and provided links to the original posts on my website at the107degree.com. And I urge people to check that out and read those letters. Third, regarding the carpet samples that were taken from the A-frame house by the New Hampshire legal investigators, I did follow up with Assistant Attorney General Strelzen and asked him whether those were received by the state police. He did get back to me, but was unable to comment on any potential evidence in the case. However, Art and Maggie were able to confirm that the carpet samples were eventually taken into evidence by the state police. And if what Strelzen said in episode 4 of the Oxygen series is true, and that all the evidence in their possession has been tested, then we can reasonably infer that the carpet samples are included in that category. The next thing is that Mr. Murray mentioned the party at Sarah Alfieri's and the three men that were supposedly present at that party. It's worth pointing out that according to police, those individuals were cleared early on in the investigation. Lastly, I think a lot of people are interested and want to help out with the case but aren't really sure what they can do. And one thing that Mr. Murray mentioned is that the so-called Loon Mountain Three have yet to be identified. There are three guys he would like to speak to if only to ask whether they perhaps saw someone walking down the road that night. It's a question that I think with a little time and energy, someone in the internet community would be able to answer. So as always, feel free to get in touch or email me with any questions, comments, or clarification, and I'll be releasing the second part of the interview soon, so be sure to check back.